Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. All right, Kev. That was fantastic. First service, they gave him a clap after the announcement. Yeah, there you go. Not sure why he gets a clap, but nonetheless, I preached my heart out first service. No clap after. I'm like, oh man. But that's okay. I'm not, I don't need a clap. Hey, uh, as you'll notice, we, we do have the three services on Easter. Um, a lot of people like to come to that middle service. Maybe not you guys. You're here a little bit later right now, and that's great. Uh, but if for some reason you were thinking, maybe I'll do the middle one, can you go to a different one, please? Because the middle one is packed. All right? And if there's nothing preventing you from going to another, that would really help us get everybody in. Uh, th- this particular coming Sunday, already uh, communion on Friday. Hope you can make it seven o'clock, as Kev said. Last week we were supposed to pray for two of our missionaries that were going out to Kenya, where they were going to be for ten days. Um, they involve my wife and my daughter, and I forgot to pray for them. Um, <laughs> it was it was a little crazy week last week. Um, I o- overslept. It was, we changed our clocks or whatever, so I overslept two hours uh, and. This clock said that time, that clock said this, and I was just lost, and I came running in here, so uh, forgive me. And my daughter, who's 11, she doesn't want to be up here in front of anybody anyway, so she was like, I didn't want to go up there anyway. You know, so it all worked out as far as she's concerned. But uh, they are in Kenya right now. They're working with the Simpsons, Jeff, Linda, Faith, and Christian, um, who we've spoken about um, previously, uh, members of our congregation that, that answered the Lord's call about four years ago to go to Kenya. And so Robin and Hope, that's their names, Robin is my wife, Hope is my daughter. Uh, they're in Kenya now, and they'll be there till Easter Sunday. Um, so please keep them in your prayers throughout the week. Um, Hope's going to be doing quite a bit of work with the children of uh, the community, working side by side with, um, with all of them, really, but Faith in particular, the Simpsons' daughter. Uh, and then my wife is doing uh, a number of different teaching-type seminar opportunities. Um, she's working with the school teachers, some of the, the church leaders on things like conflict resolution and peacemaking and stuff. She's doing some training with the teenagers, um, particularly the girls, uh, and she's doing some work with, um, with those that uh, have come out of like uh, traumatic experiences uh, in one way or another, and, and she's a trainer with the International Bible Society in that regard. So um, you could be praying for her. I think she has 10 teaching sessions she's doing over the next six, seven days. So that's a lot. All righty, so keep her in your prayers. Uh, Father, we thank you for... Jeff and Linda, we thank you for faith in Christian. We pray that uh, Robin and Hope, their presence there this week will be an encouragement to them, Lord, sort of a boost to their their faith and their stamina as they, they continue to serve you, Lord, uh, particularly the next couple of months leading up to May when they come home for a little while, um, Lord, that they would just finish up this next month, month and a half very well. Bless Robin, give her uh, words to speak, Lord, supernaturally, just work through her as she ministers to the unique needs of uh, the teens that she works with, the ladies, the teachers, uh, and others. Uh, bless Hope as well, uh, we pray. We thank you for these guys. Lord, we pray for our time now in your word. Lord, uh, we do want to hear from you. We ask you to administer to us. Lord, even as uh, Lord, I consider the text that's before us, Lord, there are some challenging words in in this text. And Lord, we do pray that uh, our hearts would receive it well from you, directly from you. Lord, you draw us into your presence. Lord, you administer to us in such a way. Lord, like those disciples on the road to Emmaus, Lord, we would just know that we've been in, the, in your presence. 
and that our hearts would burn within us, Lord, even as we receive this word from you. So bless the word as it goes forth, both in this room as well as uh, around this building, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my friends, we are in Matthew chapter 10. We are in the middle of Matthew chapter 10, so please turn there in your Bibles. If you need a Bible, we have some available for you. We we would like everyone to have a Bible. Uh, And we are in Matthew chapter 10. Matter of fact, if you pick up one of the Bibles at the table there, it's marked for you so that you can just find the the bookmark and and go right to it. Now, in the middle of the chapter, it means that we need to kind of go back and remind ourselves of a couple of things in the chapter. First, take notice of Matthew chapter 10 starting in verse 1, to give us a context of where we're at. Verse 1 says, Now Jesus called to him his disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Look down to verse 5, and it says, And these twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so Jesus now is going to send out a group of people to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and they're going to minister. And the rest of chapter 10 is about instructions, or it is instructions for those disciples that are going to go out. And I've given you, uh, we looked at some of these already. Verse 5, for instance, let's remind ourselves of what we considered last week. Verse 5 tells us that they were to focus their effort, efforts among the Jews. God bless you. Fo- focus their efforts among the Jews. So as opposed to going to the Gentiles, as opposed to going to the Samaritans, their job was going to be to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The long-awaited message that the Jews had been expecting, that God would send forth the Messiah, that's what they were going to bring to the Jews. Jesus, as we mentioned, his primary ministry during his days on the earth was to minister to the Jews. And so that's what they're supposed to do as well. Eventually it would go to the Gentiles, but that's what they were supposed to do at that time. Notice verse 8, second instructions, that they were to serve, they were to minister, and not expect anything in return for their efforts as far as finances are concerned. Jesus said, you receive without paying, give without pay. That this journey that they were going to go on, it was certainly going to draw a lot of attention because they were going to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead even here. And Jesus says that they weren't supposed to go and do this expecting somehow to profit off of this ministry. It wasn't going to be about them. It was going to be about the work of the Lord. So verse 8 talks about that. Verse 9, Jesus instructs them that they need to trust him to provide for their needs. So there in that verse it says, Acquire no gold, silver, copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. And so they weren't supposed to gather up all sorts of resources and then come to the conclusion, okay, I have everything I need. I've taken every contingency into into thought, if you will, and now I'm ready to go minister. Jesus said, you're going to have to step out in faith if you're going to go. So don't go gather up all this stuff so that you have thought through every possible contingency. Just go out in faith. You're going to have to trust me to provide. We saw that instruction. Verse 11, he adds, and be content with what I do provide. So when you get into a town and and we found a nice bed for you to kind of stay in, don't be kind of wandering around saying, is there a better bed that I can stay in, a little nicer place with better food and, you know, a back porch that I can sit on or whatever. He says, be content with what you receive. And then finally, the instruction we saw last week in verse 14 was, you know what, if you or your message is rejected, just kind of deal with it and move on. Just shake it off, he said. Don't get all mad. Don't get all angry with them. Don't write people off and call down fire from heaven. Just kind of shake it off, the dust of your feet, and move on. And if you're going to let anything be sort of moved, be moved to pity. 
Because here's a person that's rejecting the good news of the gospel of Christ, that though they are sinners, that their sin can be forgiven. And they can be washed and cleansed and brought into a relationship with the holy God. He says, be moved to pity. But they stand in judgment still. And so those were some of the instructions we looked at in the opening portion of the chapter. Now we move on to the rest of Jesus' instructions. It starts in verse 16, and I'm going to read up to verse 23. Please follow along. It says, Now behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in the synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, don't be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father will be speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures unto the end will be saved. And when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. You know, certainly as you read those words, you know, they're heavy, sobering words. I, can't ima- I can only imagine that there were some who were initially excited that, you know, they got picked. Remember, there was about 100 or so disciples that were there. Jesus selected out 12 of them. And there were probably some that were thinking, oh, all right, it's going to be great. I'm going to go out and heal the sick, this and that. And then they hear these words and they're thinking, oh, no, I don't uh, pick somebody else. Or whatever, he picked you, he didn't pick me, he pointed at you. You know, this kind of thing, and they argue over that, or whatever. So let's go through these. They are hard words to hear. Starting in verse 16, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Jesus begins this section of his instructions by making it very clear that each one of these apostles, and I would say indeed, each one of his disciples, including you and I in this room, that we should not be surprised that challenges and difficulties will arise as a direct result of our ministry efforts. That that shouldn't surprise us or shock us or draw us to some conclusion. But Lord, I'm trying to do good for you. Why is everyone giving me pushback on that? Jesus says you shouldn't be surprised that that is coming. And I would suggest to you that this next section is designed to prep them for that reality, for the reality that persecution is going to come their way. He begins by saying that he's sending them out he is sending them out as sheep among wolves. And I jotted a note down for myself and said, why would he do that? That's a very precarious to be, place to be, sheep among wolves, and he's doing it on purpose. And, and again, I wrote down, why would Jesus do that? If Jesus is the good shepherd, why would he lead his sheep out into the midst of wolves? And remember, you're the sheep. Why would he do that? And again, remember, or I shouldn't say again, remember the answer is this. Jesus knows what he's doing. So even if you don't know what he's doing, he knows what he is doing. Persecution refines the church. Persecution refines the church because you get rid of posers pretty quickly when there's persecution added into the equation here. 
We know this also, persecution, it actually builds the church. There's a story that is told in communist Russia. This is just leading up to the days when communism fell. So it was probably in the 1980s, maybe early 1990s. And in communist Russia, where God was essentially outlawed and atheism was sort of the official position of the the nation and the culture, it was interesting that communist Russia allowed for the Russian Orthodox Church to continue in that nation. Not because of the message they shared necessarily, but because of the cultural implications of the Russian Orthodox Church in that day. And so they allowed it. And so people would get up and they'd go off to church at the Russian Orthodox Church at a particular time. Well, there's a story that is told with one group of people that while they were there in church singing their hymns or whatever it may be, that the Roman military came in and they, they slammed the, the, the doors open and they slammed the doors behind them and they stood in front of the doors and the commander of this group of people went up in front of the church and kind of pushed the priest off to the side and essentially said to the, all of the people that were gathered there and said, look, we're going to give every one of you a choice right now. You can either get out of this church right now and essentially deny Christ and your commitment to him or you can face the consequences. And so as you can imagine, 50, 60% of the people said, I'm out of here. And they got up and they took off because they were just sort of culturally Christians. And then the, the guy got up again and he said, look, last warning, anybody that wants to take off now, you can take off now. The rest of you are going to face the consequences. And so another 10% or whatever of the people. And it was a small percentage, about 20% of the people that had remained there. And finally, the commander up front, he said to the people, he says, now we know who the Christians are. And they disclosed to them that we too are brothers in the Lord with you. And we worship even though it's against the law. You know, that sort of thing. Persecution refines the church. It causes the posers to get out pretty quickly. You know, if you knew to come here this morning, you would be risking your lives. And if the entire time here this morning you sort of looked over your shoulder at the door as it opened because you feared that it might potentially be the authorities coming to get you, I suspect there'd be quite a few of us that wouldn't be here this morning. I think our ushers would be a lot bigger people if, uh, if that was the case here. You know what I mean? We say anybody can be an usher. No, we want wrestling ushers, you know, the big guys. That's who we're looking for here. It would certainly change things because persecution, it refines the church. Persecution also historically has built the church. I'll give you another example of this. In the 1940s, The nation of India had gotten its independence from the British Empire. And for years, the the Brits had ruled over them, and now they're going to get their independence here. And there was quite a bit of debate between the Muslim population of India and the Hindu population of India. Hindus made up probably about 70, 75% of the population. Muslims made up about 20% of the population. And the Muslims wanted to make sure that the Hindus didn't rule them as a minority people. And so there was quite a bit of debate. And that debate eventually led to civil war. So much so that India actually, before it even got started as its own nation, it actually split as a nation. And so two nations formed as a result of this split. Pakistan on one side of the country, Bangladesh on the other side, and then there was India. Pakistan, Bangladesh, Muslim, uh, India, Hindu. Now, the question arose, well, what do we do about the Christians that are here in India as well? About 2% of the population in the 1940s in India were Christians. And so there were some that were suggesting we need to outlaw them. We are a Hindu nation, and so we have to outlaw Christianity. And it's interesting that the new prime minister of the nation, a man by the name of Nehru was his last name, he counseled that the nation leave the Christians alone. 
And the reason why he did that is not because of his tolerance or anything like that, but his solution to leave them alone was that they would remain in their complacency. Because he knew, and he said, any time that the Christians are persecuted, their numbers actually grow. And so he said, just leave them alone and let them not worry about anything, and then there'll be 2% of our population. We won't even have to worry about them. Persecution builds the church, and it refines away the posers so that that which remains are those that are truly committed as followers of Jesus Christ. And such a commitment is contagious. And so Jesus says, knowing what he's doing, he says, I send you out as sheep among wolves. Persecution would come, and it was to be expected. Now, when a sheep is out there in the midst of wolves, or when you are out there in the midst of your enemy, so to speak, you know you need to be on your guard. This trip that these guys were going on, this wasn't going to be a fun vacation for them. These disciples were going to have to go out and be vigilant, They were going to have to go out on their guard throughout the journey, lest at some time they be unprepared for an attack that may come against them. And so a sheep in the midst of wolves needs to be wise. And Jesus refers to that. Look at verse 16. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be wise as serpents. At the same time, these disciples would need to remain as innocent as doves. Consistently, being on your guard in that way can cause a person to become pretty cynical and cause a person to become hard-hearted. Consistently being on your guard in that way can cause a person even to become familiar with the ways of the enemy and perhaps be tempted to even employ some of the means of the enemy. And so Jesus says, not only I want you to be as wise as serpents, but I want you to remain as innocent as doves. You're going to be tempted to employ means of the enemies. Don't do it, Jesus says. You know, I think Jesus, Paul, if you've been to a wedding, you know this verse because it's read, it seems, at every wedding. It says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I like the way that the New Living Translation says it. I think it speaks to what Paul's trying to communicate a little more clearly. It says, love never gives up. Love never loses faith. Love is always hopeful. Love endures through every circumstance. That phrase, love never loses faith, the context of the passage is love never loses faith in another in other people that are around them. It remains, if you will, as innocent as a dove. It's wise. It's using its head, you know, in the circumstances there, but it continues to believe in the opportunity that other have, others have to repent. It never loses that faith in others. It remains as innocent as doves. Wisdom would keep them from looking for trouble. Innocence would keep them from bringing trouble on themselves by retaliating for wrongs that are done to them. And so he tells them, wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Look at verse 17. He says, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts. They will flog you, whip you in their synagogues. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And so Jesus makes it clear. They're preparing for their first ministry effort. And he makes it clear to them, you are going to experience opposition from the political authorities, the civil authorities, and also the religious authorities. Now, an interesting thing is this. Nowhere in the rest of the Gospels do we have any record of these disciples actually experiencing these things that Jesus talked about on this particular trip. And so that seems then to reveal to us that Jesus is speaking to these disciples and prepping them not only for this trip, but future trips, if you will, 
that they're going to go on. And some have suggested that Jesus is speaking years into the future. And many have pointed to, for instance, 70 A.D. In 70 A.D., the Romans came against the Jews and against the Christians there, and it led to what is called the Diaspora, as Jews and Christians essentially ran for their lives out of Jerusalem all around the world. What they meant for evil, God meant for good, because when they ran for their lives, inevitably people said, what are you doing here? They said, well, they're killing Christians. I never heard of a Christian. What's a Christian? Well, let me tell you. And so God used that for good. So some have suggested that's what Jesus was looking forward to, and that may be the case. Others have suggested Jesus is looking far beyond 70 A.D., and he's looking to our day, thousands of years into the future. And we do know this about the church, that the church has experienced year after year or or decade after decade, decade, century after century, waves of persecution. I think around the world today, we are in one of those waves of persecution that we're seeing increasingly. So maybe that's what Jesus is speaking. Maybe speaking a little bit of both of those events. We do know this, that at some point in time, every one of these disciples that are sitting there, these apostles that would go out, they experienced the persecution that Jesus was describing. Of these 12, take Judas out because Judas would go out and kill himself after he betrayed the Lord. But each one of these would ultimately give their life for following Christ. Some of them literally, 11 of or 10 of them literally gave their life. John, the apostle, was eventually, he's the only one who died of old age as a Christian, but he wasn't in some nursing home. They cast him off into, uh, onto the island of Patmos where he died out his days essentially as an exile on an island there. But he gave his life, all of, each of them, they gave their life ultimately serving the Lord. And so again, Jesus says, you're going to experience opposition from both the political, commu- political community as well as the religious community. Now, it begs us the question, to ask the question, why is that? Why is there such opposition to this message that these guys are going to bring? I mean, really, think about the message that they're bringing. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' kingdom manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, He said, this is the teaching, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, who could oppose that? Who could oppose you going and doing good works in the name of Christ? And so there you are, you're in your front yard and you see that the neighbor's trash is blown over, you know, as it was put out for trash and now it's all over the yard. And so you go over and you start picking this up and then they pull up and start screaming at you, how dare you come pick up my trash? Well, who would yell at that? Right? Do you know anybody that would be upset that you're picking up their garbage that is blown around? Some of you probably do. All right? But why would anybody be upset about that? Why would anyone be against Matthew 5.41 that says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too? Now, of course, if you're kind of annoying, they may not want you to go too with them. But the idea is that you are being generous. They ask for one tunic, you give them a little bit extra there. Why would anyone oppose that? Why would anyone want to persecute these believers for being believers? Well, the answer is given to us in John chapter 3. John 3, it says this, and this is the judgment. That light, that refers to Jesus, has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. And for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest the deeds, his deeds, should be exposed. There's your reason. It's because the world likes its sin. And doesn't want anything to hinder that sin. Now, sitting here, I'm sure some of us are being tempted to say, the world, bunch of sinners that they are, or whatever. Remember, you were in that exact same place 
not too long ago as well. But Christ that opened up your heart to believe. And so you don't, we don't shake our head in pride that we believe and they don't believe. I can't believe those people. We shake our head, if you will, in pity. Oh, Lord, open up their hearts. As you opened up mine, open up their hearts as well. Amen? Are you with me? All right. So anyway, Jesus here speaking of this, that you're going to be rejected. Look at verse 17. In there, he says, you will be dragged before governors and dragged before kings. Anybody here ever stood before a king? Anybody? Some of you maybe a governor? Come on, some of you? No, none of you? I stood before the President of the United States. He was giving a speech up here at the airport. I was about 10 feet away. I was in front of him. Technically, I stood before him, you know, that kind of thing, but not that exciting. I don't know if anyone in this room is ever going to have the opportunity to stand before a king, a governor, a president, or whatever it may be. And I'm sure these fishermen heard that and thought, what? We're a bunch of fishermen. We're a bunch of lay people. Why would we ever be brought before a governor? Why would we ever be brought before a king? Little did they know the scope that this little Galilean ministry was going to have both on their community, on their nation, on the world, and on history itself. And so Jesus says, you're going to be dragged before governors and kings and give testimony. Look at verse 19. He says, when they deliver you over, don't be anxious as to how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. It's not for you to speak. It's not you who speak, I should say, but the spirit of your father will be speaking through you. Now, some have used this verse to essentially make an argument for a lack of preparation and essentially saying, you know what, I don't need to prepare. God will give me the words to say. That's not how you should use this verse. We don't just get up and wing it here. I, I think even when people are going to share their testimony to, to somebody on the street or, you know, we have this event that Kevin is putting together here that all of us are going to be involved in and we're very excited about in June Uh, and say, you know, I'd like you to come share your testimony. I think it's wise to take some time and think through what it is you're going to be preparing to say. And that's not an indication that you're not trusting God or something like that. So don't use this verse essentially to say, we don't need to prepare. God will just give me the words to speak. We are diligent in our preparation, but I think this is the key. We don't merely rely on that preparation. We depend on him through that whole process. Does that make sense? And so we prepare diligently, but we rely on him. Because we're not trying to win arguments. We're not just trying to logically come up with a solution that I can put in front of you. And you'll say, it makes perfect sense. I'm a believer now. We're trying to win men's hearts. And it's the Holy Spirit that wins over a person's heart. It's the Holy Spirit that won over your heart if you're a believer. And somebody may have come with a logical argument or whatever, but you would have been blinded to see that if the Holy Spirit wasn't at work within you. And so Jesus says, let the Holy Spirit be the one that speaks through you. I think that's good practical words. And again, none of us here may ever be brought before a king or a governor or some kind of ruler or a judge or anything like that. But you will likely be put on the spot before some friends or put on the spot before some coworkers or classmates or family members or something like that. Some of you this week may be put on the spot. You don't really believe that your God came out of a grave and rose again and ascended up into heaven. Do you really believe that? Some of us may be put on the spot this very week. And so here's my suggestion to you. I think it's biblical. It is. Um, Take the time now to prepare for that occasion that will happen then. 
and trust the Spirit to bring those things to your remembrance so that he can speak through you. Remember what Jesus said in John 14? He said, the helper, who is the Holy Spirit, he tells us that, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so do some preparation now that when you, are fi- you find yourself in that circumstance where you're in school and the kid's at the lunch table and you have to, you could either kind of shrink away and say, I got to go now or whatever, or you can give a word, you're prepared to give a word or at work or whatever it may be, your family and so on. Jesus continues, look at verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's important for these disciples to know so that when these things started happening, they wouldn't be thrown off their game. It's important to know and you to know and me to know as well that families would and will continue to be divided over the gospel for Jesus' name's sake. Families will be divided over the gospel. People will die because of their proclamation of the gospel. We found some facts about the persecuted church, and this is so interesting, I think, and hard to believe, but one statistic. Do you have it up there? Yeah, you have it. I don't know if you can read it, but I'll give you this one. More Christians were martyred in the 1900s than in all of the other centuries combined, the last 1,800 years or so before that. More Christians were martyred in the last 100 years It's currently estimated that 105,000 Christians are martyred each year for their faith. And currently, over 100 million Christians are being actively persecuted worldwide. People will die because of their faith. It's hard, I think, for us. Here we are in a relatively safe environment. I think it's hard for us to equate what's going on around the world. But brothers and sisters in the faith, and I encourage, if you don't already, you should. Pray for your brothers and sisters in the faith, that they would be delivered if that's the Lord will, but that they would remain faithful and give a faithful testimony even in the midst of the persecution. There's some really good resources that are out there that will sort of give you an indication of how you can pray, um, and we could help you with that if that's something that is of interest to you. But people will die because of the gospel, Jesus says. Don't be surprised when it happens. Disciples of Christ will be hated because of the gospel. Now, not too long ago, I asked the question, and I think in the context of these heavy words that we're reading, it helps, it bears asking the question again, is how much is a soul worth to you? Families aren't being divided, people aren't being hated, and people aren't being murdered because they're just sort of a nice Christian that's living off on an island by themselves. They're being hated, they're being murdered, they're being persecuted because they're bringing the gospel message to people. So again, how much is a soul worth to you? Is it worth it to you to face potential division in your family because of the gospel? For many of us, I don't know. I don't think so. Is it okay with you that you might be hated because of your commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And lastly, this question, would you be willing to give your life if it comes to that for the gospel. Now, I think it's important to add this point here. It talks about all the disciples are going to be hated. Make sure you're hated for the right reasons. Some Christians are just jerks. Some Christians are self-righteous Pharisees, and nobody likes you. And then we blame it on Jesus or whatever. 
You know, you don't have to be obnoxious, and you don't have to be a jerk, you don't have to be a self-righteous Pharisee. Make sure that the persecution that comes your way is coming your way for the right reasons. But Jesus does say to expect it. Now, I think there's a troubling phrase. Look at verse 22, the end of it. It says this, he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That forces the question, does that mean that a person that denies the Lord in the face of persecution will not be saved? Is that saying that the only, only the ones that endure persecution to the end actually end up being saved? And taken at face value, that's what it says. However, I think the larger context of Scripture, which we always want to look at, I think that makes clear that it can't be saying that. Peter, for instance, denied the Lord, and we know his story, and yet he continued in relationship with the Lord. I suspect every one of us in this room, at one point in time or another, we chickened out when presented with the opportunity to share our faith with another person here. So does that mean that we all run the risk of not being saved? And if it does mean that, well, then how does this verse, how does it jive with then a verse that is very clear like Ephesians 2, which says, for by grace you have been saved by your faith. And even that's not even of your own. It's a gift of God that you have the faith. So is it I am saved by faith or I am saved by my perseverance and my endurance? Which one is it? And I think the simplest explanation is this, is that endurance is a hallmark of believer. You are a believers. You are not classified as a believer because you have endured, but it's because we are believers we do endure. Does that make sense? And so if you stumble in the face of opposition, then the exhortation of Scripture is confess it as sin. Say, Lord, I'm sorry. I don't know why I chickened out. Lord, I don't know why I'm embarrassed of my relationship with you. Lord, I don't know why I let that hinder me. And I didn't share. Would you forgive me? And you know what? Just like Peter there on the shores of Galilee, John chapter 21. Read that passage if you find yourself coming off of a, of a stumbling. Read that passage and let God just minister to your heart and let him restore you as Peter was restored after he denied the Lord three times. When, if you will, Jesus needed him more than ever as he himself was being uh, whipped and beaten and eventually crucified. Well, anyway, let's continue on. Verse 23, when they persecute you in one town... He says, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Part of that admonition to be wise as serpents that we read about in verse 10, is, or 16 I mean, is to avoid persecution if it's at all possible without compromising your message. And so if it's a matter of getting up and getting out of that area before the persecutors come, Jesus says do that if you can do so without compromising your message. If you could flee to another place, they were to do so. Now there's another verse there, phrase of that verse that's a little challenging. Again, verse 23, at the end there it says, you will not have gone through all of the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Well, I don't know how many towns there were in Israel. A hundred, let's say, at that time? You mean to tell me in the last 2,000 years... Some Christian hasn't gone to each of those 200 villages at least once. And so what is this saying? Where is the promise of his return? Is, is it saying that as soon as that message gets to each of those towns, or it's not even going to get to each of those towns, he's going to come? Where is the promise of the Lord's coming? Well, there's a couple of understandings for this. Number one is that Jesus is not speaking about his return in great power. 
So when it says, and when the Son of Man comes, we think he's going to come through the clouds, that kind of thing. That's not what Jesus is referring to. But rather, he's referring to his return in judgment on the nation of Israel, which he referenced back in Matthew chapter 10 when he said it'll be more tolerable for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for those particular towns, Capernaum and the others. That that's what he's talking about. And that it seems that came about in A.D. 70. So that day of judgment that Jesus is talking about is the Roman destruction of Jerusalem and beyond in 70 A.D. And so that's one possible. An alternative understanding is that Jesus is talking about his triumphal return, but he's not necessarily talking to this group of people that are in front of him about that day. And that is that Jesus is speaking prophetically to this group, but he's looking past that group to those that are going to come 1,000 years, 1,500 years, 2,000 years into the future. And that is a technique that we see in prophecy where a prophet will speak and initially they're talking to this crowd and then all of a sudden, next thing you know, a comma later, they're 2,000 years into the future. And that that's what Jesus is referring to. Either way, the point is this. Persecution will come in one form or another and these disciples, you and I as his disciples, need to trust the Holy Spirit in the face of that to speak through us and minister to people's hearts. Either way, the point's the same. And so Jesus continues in verse 24. He said, a disciple is not above his teacher. A servant is not above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of the household? Some of your versions might say Beelzebub. Some might say the prince of demons. Some versions even say the Lord of the flies. It's the same thing we're talking about all of them. They're ultimately Satan. If they have called the master of the house Satan, and remember they they said Jesus cast out demons by the prince of demons. They said that just a little bit a while ago. So Jesus here, he's saying this. A disciple, which we know means to follow the teacher, that if if the teacher had no place to lay his head, well, then the disciples should expect that from time to time they're not going to have any place to lay their head. If the teacher had to go without a meal or two, it's pretty likely the disciples are going to have to go without a meal or two. If the teacher had to undergo persecution, then the disciple likely will have to undergo persecution. That it shouldn't surprise them when these things come against them. And so Jesus adds in verse 26, Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed. Nothing is hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, because you are of more value than many sparrows. So, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, notice in those verses how frequently a phrase or something close to the phrase of fear not is presented. So verse 26, it says, have no fear. It reminds me of underdog. Remember underdog, you old people? I have no fear. All right, he says, have no fear. Verse 28. It says, do not fear. Verse 31, it says, to fear not. Again and again, something like that is repeated in these verses. So let me ask you this question. Does the idea of rejection, persecution, and even martyrdom, does that make you fearful? I'm going to pause for a second. 
Does the idea of rejection, persecution, and martyrdom, does that make you fearful? Now, I know a lot of you are thinking like, no, no, not at all. And I'm thinking, what a bunch of liars, okay? <laughs> I, I see a few of you are like, it sure does. Yes, it makes me fearful. And you know what? I think that's not to be unexpected. And so I don't want us to look at this verse and think, man, if I have fear, there's something wrong with me. Because I think fear is a natural emotion. And so the point here is not to never be made, I think that's bad English, but work with me. It's not that we are never made afraid of such things, but rather not to allow such things to alter our actions. Okay, is that somewhat clear? Because fear is an emotion, but your response to that fear is a determination. You know, sometimes I go to these men's events or whatever, and I walk out of there feeling like I, I need to go to the weight room and, and bulk up a little bit or whatever. I feel like I'm a man, you know, this kind of thing. And if you're a man, you don't get afraid or whatever. I'm sorry. That's just not my experience. And I am a man. I'll tell you that right now. I, and I'm, that's not my experience. I do get fearful and I do get afraid. And so it's not about not ever getting afraid, but it's about allowing that to alter our actions and our behavior. The point is, really, how do you respond to that fear? So Jesus says again, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed. Nothing is hidden that will not be known. And he goes on. Jesus' disciples, he gives them confidence that the truth would indeed be revealed, even if it doesn't seem like it's working out in that particular way. And so they shouldn't fear when things don't appear to be going their way. Jesus says, don't fear those that kill the body. Pretty freaky to me. But he says, rather, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Don't let it alter your actions. Somebody has said this. Actually, it was Charles Spurgeon. He said, there is no cure for the fear of men like the fear of God. There's no cure of the fear of men like the fear of God. Now, if you were being chased by a pack of ravenous wolves to the edge of a cliff, and you either stay there and get eaten or you jump off the cliff and sort of take your chances on that perilous cliff there, well, the question becomes, what do you fear more? Do you fear being torn limb from limb by these ravenous wolves or the fall? Which one do you fear more? Well, your action will determine. If you stay there, you fear the fall more. If you jump off, you fear the animals more. Your action will be an indicator of that which you fear more. Your next action determines what you fear more. And we can't let fear alter our behavior, demonstrating that we fear the enemy more and determine our behavior, which demonstrates that we don't fear the Father more. The answer really does come down to whose care do you wish to cast yourself into? You can cast your ca- yourself into the care of the enemy, who John chapter 10 says comes to steal, kill, and destroy life, or you can cast yourself into the care of your Father. The one that verse goes on to say, came that we may have life and have it more abundantly. Who do you fear more? Let that alter your actions. Now, verse 29, he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? I don't know. Is that what they go for? How do I know? Uh, But that's what it says. And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father? He says, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. If two birds worth less than a penny. And it's interesting, Luke chapter 12 says you can get five birds for two pennies, which means if you buy in bulk, you get a discount. 
Alrighty, so if they're worth less than a penny here and the father takes notice of them when they fall, well, don't you think he takes notice of you when you go through what it is that you go through? Even the sparrows are not unnoticed. Taking the point even further, Jesus says, and even the hairs of their head are all numbered. That used to be very impressive to me. It's not that impressive to me any longer here, but I I get the point of what he's trying to say. The point is this. He sees you. He knows you. He's with you. And he's the one that you should be fearing, altering your behavior based on your fear of him. Let's go on. Let's see if we can finish the chapter. Verse 34, he says, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I haven't come to bring peace but a sword. I have come to se- for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother-in-law, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, he says. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Those opening verses, 34 and 36, through 36, it's sort of a summary of what Jesus has already been presenting. He kind of goes back and he looks again at this idea of the division that the proclamation of the gospel is going to bring. And so as a follower of Christ, as one that is sent out as a minister of Christ, and all of us are sent forth as servants of God, ministers of God, as a person that is, we need to know right from the beginning that choices are going to need to be made in order for us to be his disciple. Some of our relationships are going to have to go. In fact, the disciple is going to have to be willing to sacrifice every relationship, even the very closest of relationships, including mom and dad, son or daughter, brother or sister, husband or wife. Notice Jesus' strong words there in verse 17. He says, whoever is not willing, uh, I'm paraphrasing, sacrifice those things is not worthy of me. We might hear that. We might think, what is this, some cult? Because you remember in the 1970s or whatever, and there was a lot of cult movements, social cult movements in the United States. Oftentimes what happened is you had to completely break off contact with, you know, your past, mom and dad, brother, sister, friends, all those sorts of things. Is this some cult? And of course the answer is no. We're not looking to break off these relationships. The point of this is this. As it says there in verse 37, the point is that key phrase where it says more than me. So if you love mom or dad, brother or sister, husband or wife, more than me, that's the problem. A disciple's devotion to Christ has to come even above the devotion they have for their family. Because if it doesn't, even the family can become an idol in that person's life. Now we know an idol in our lives, practically kind of in our day, an idol is anything that takes the place in our, hi- in our hearts that Christ should rightfully occupy. And I think many times we conclude, excuse me, that modern day idols are things that are like clear sin things. Sexual sin can become an idol in our lives. Drugs can become an idol. Money and embezzlement, those things can become idols in our lives and so on. The reality is this, many times the greatest danger of idolatry comes in the form of things that aren't necessarily bad. They're just not God's best. And believe it or not, undue devotion to family would fall in that category. I know enough people in this room that I know that there are folks in this room that have strained relationships with a mom or a dad 
or a brother or a sister or a husband or a wife because of them being a follower of Jesus Christ. Some of us in this room have seen a marriage disintegrate because they became a follower of Jesus and their spouse wasn't interested in that at all. And unfortunately, the relationship ended. Some of us in this room, we have children, grown kids. We have coworkers. We have neighbors a couple of houses down from us. or whatever. I'm not giving you a personal example. But we have neighbors or whatever that live in and around us that want nothing to do with us because we are followers of Jesus Christ. And if that describes you and you know personally the pain that Jesus is referring to here, then I want you to be assured, I'm encouraging you to be assured that Jesus sees and Jesus cares. And no such decision goes unnoticed by the Lord. Amen to that? So this is a call to be a disciple. Notice what he also says in verse 38. He says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Great verse, right? Put it on your t-shirt. Remember this, though. A cross was an implement of death. And a person carried, notice what it says, his cross, a person carried his cross to the place where they would be executed on that cross, as Jesus does in this Holy Week that we um, think about this week more so perhaps than normal. The cross was an implement of death. The cross was a cruel means of execution. The cross was actually something. Jesus wasn't the only guy to die on a cross. Some millions, uh, 60,000 people, I know the Romans, had uh, one number I can recall off the top of my head, crucified. So lots of people died on a cross. But the cross was so gory that you didn't talk about the cross in polite conversation with people. It just like, we're going to talk about that because it was so horrific. And I think in our day, we've softened the idea of the cross. We adorn our churches with crosses. We wear them around our neck. We ha- have them dangling from our ears or whatever. And, and I know we do so as a sign of devotion to Christ, and, and I think we should. I, I don't have anything wrong with it necessarily. Uh, devotion to him and what he accomplished on the cross. But the reality is this, by seeing it all the time in the way that we do, it somewhat lessens the impact of these words. When he says, take up your cross, come after me and follow me. The cross was the electric chair of their day. The cross was the gas chamber. It was the place where they administer the lethal injection. It was the hangman's noose. The cross was the place a person went to die. And now here is Jesus saying to these disciples, bringing up a topic you didn't talk about in polite conversation, he's saying that the cross is the bare minimum of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And he actually goes on. Notice what he says. If you're not willing to take one up and begin the first step of your last set of steps, then he says you're not worthy to even come after me. For some of us, the hardest thing possible for us to imagine having to sacrifice would be our family. People that we love that might say, you know what, I don't want anything to do with you because you're a believer. But I think the hardest thing any of us would ever be asked to give up is our own lives and to lay our lives down for the gospel, to die to self and to live for Christ. And for some of us, maybe in this room, certainly for some of our brothers and sisters around the world, this day, this morning, that may literally mean giving our life. And it might mean that for us. And many throughout the history of the church have done that. But it may not necessarily mean that for us in the confines of the United States of America, or at least at this point, this freedom of faith and religion. It does mean this, though. 
for all of us that name the name of Christ, that phrase, take up your cross and come follow me, it's something that we have to do on a daily basis. To die to self and to live unto Christ. And so when the dishes are piled up there, and my flesh says, you know what, she should do the dishes. Did the dishes like two weeks ago. Anyone do the dishes again? Teasing. I'm the dish doer in my house here. Already, but there's a party that says, I'm not doing them. The kid should have to do them. She should have to do them. That's an opportunity to die to self. When I get even, want to get even, let me say it that way. When I want to get even with a person, a person that cuts you off in line. But you ever do this? People, you wave, go ahead, you go. And then they go and they don't wave back to you. You love, don't you love that? You just, you want to follow them home. Say, hey, I let you in. You didn't wave. Give me a wave, man, or whatever. You're mad at them here. I was driving down 31 the other day, and there was a guy, and, and so I pulled out my car. He was perhaps a little closer than I expected, and so he had to, like, touch his brakes a little. He didn't have to hit his brakes. He had to, like, slow down a little bit, and he didn't like the fact that I pulled out in front of him or whatever. So he comes by me, gives me a look. I gave him a look back, you know, or whatever, and then he pulls in front of me and slows down. I know. I know. <laughs> so I was tempted. My flesh was tempted, and so I pulled out in front of him and slowed down, or <laughs> whatever. And now I confess that as sin to you, or whatever. But the flesh, the flesh wants to live. You know, when you feel you're drawn away toward temptation, that's an opportunity to die to self and to live unto God. Now, we hear that, and we say, but, Lord, that's too hard. I can do that on a weekend retreat. I'll put my happy face on. I'll be nice to everybody. Yes, brother. Love you, brother, or whatever. But, Lord, every day at home, 24-7, when I'm tired and cranky and I don't feel like doing it anymore, some would say, Lord, I have needs. I do need to look out for number one. If I don't, I'll become a doormat, you know, these things. And Jesus, I think his response would be something like this where Jesus would respond and say, you know what, you're going about this life all the wrong way. You think that true life is doing whatever you want when you want to do it. You think that life is living in comfort and ease and with no difficulties. You think that giving into sin and temptation and desires as the impulse comes, that that's true life. Jesus said, you're going about it all right. That's not true life at all, Jesus says. You and I, everyone that lives on this earth, was created to be in relationship with God. And as we keep clutching things of the world and things that we have convinced ourselves that we can't live without, when all is said and done, we will come to the end of our lives and realize we never had life at all. You were created to be in relationship with Christ. And self hinders that relationship. And so Jesus says, die to self. He says, give up and say, you know what, Lord, I'm yours. Do with me as you please. Because that's the place that true life, the life you were created to have, that's the place where it is found. That's the place where it says in John chapter 10, I mentioned it earlier, that's the place where we find life and life more abundant. Jesus says in Matthew 10 here, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And we're not talking about physically being dead. 
We're talking about dying to self. And so can I ask you this question for you to chew on a little bit? I think it's good to have questions and pose questions to ourselves. Here's a question I'd like you to chew on. Is there anything in your life that is keeping you from fully giving your life over to Christ? Is there anything that is keeping you? Is it a temptation toward popularity? Is it the temptation to be the wealthiest guy on your block and to do whatever it takes to get the money to have that Is it the temptation to be liked by everybody and have no difficulties or struggles? Is there something that is keeping you back? Is it some sin? Give that over to the Lord. Stop clutching it, that thing, that person, that habit. Lay it down, and as the Scripture says, take up your cross instead. Die to yourself, live to Christ. Because as the Word tells us, that's the place where true and abundant life is found. And now our final verses, words of encouragement, I believe. It says, whoever receives you receives me, verse 40. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And so I believe they're words of encouragement. Even a small gesture, like sharing a cup of cold water with somebody else, with a disciple here, does not go unnoticed. And so certainly so, a person that gives their life is not going to go unnoticed by the Father as well. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, these are uh, challenging words for us to consider. And Lord, we don't know what the future holds for us as a nation Lord, in this nation, or if, Lord, you would send us to the uttermost parts of the earth, Lord, we don't know what that would hold for us as well. And some of us in this room, we may have to give our lives in order to remain faithful to the gospel. And, Lord, we pray. Lord, I believe that the decision to do that then begins with the decision that we make here now. Lord, that we would count the cost and whatever it takes to be faithful to whatever it is you bring us through. Lord, we make that choice, we make that call now, and we continue to make that choice each day. And again, Lord, we don't know what, what is ahead of us, Lord, but we do know this, that our flesh is desperately seeking to reign over every decision we make every day. We continually want to ask the question, well, how does this benefit me? What am I going to get out of this? And Lord, we know that a life that runs after self ultimately is not a life at all. And so we struggle and we strive to hold on, Lord, to clutch, Lord, these things that are going to bring us joy and peace and contentment. And ultimately, oh Lord, all those things are found in you. So Father, I pray that that the word which just speaks to us about dying to self and living unto Christ, Lord, Lord, that that would become sort of the anthem of each of our hearts. Lord, that we would move forward just with a greater sense of your presence. Lord, in a greater uh, communion with you, moment by moment. Lord, that we would just cast ourselves before you. Lord, knowing that you do indeed care for us. And so use this word, Lord, today, challenging words, but use it, we ask, to speak to our hearts and to bring about good things in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name.
Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.